From Optimized Health, this is the True Health Podcast, where we unlearn diet culture and personalize our health, one tip and story at a time. My guest today is Darsha Narvaez, professor of psychology at the University of Notre Dame, fellow of the American Psychological Association, the American Educational Research Association, and many others. Her work is powerful, groundbreaking, and I am a personal huge fan. Um, I would say her work scales from something as seemingly small as a parent's interaction with their crying baby, all the way to the full scope of human evolution and the interplay between it all. Uh, In her work, she employs an interdisciplinary approach to studying childhood development, evolved morality, and human flourishing. She hosts EvolvedNest.org, is president of KindredWorld.org, and has written many publications and books across child developmental psychology, indigenous wisdom, and human evolution. Uh, Her forthcoming book is coming out this August. It is called Evolved Nest, Nature's Way of Raising Children and Creating Connected Communities. Um, And I actually already have it on my personal pre-order list. Um, With that, I'm super excited for this conversation. Darsha, welcome. Thank you so much. Great to be here with you, Ethan. Absolutely. Um, So I was chatting with you a little before this, just saying I um, have been so excited about this conversation because I feel like the work you do and the concepts you discuss are sort of the invisible underpinnings of ultimately all of society. Um, But it's also hard to kind of put a finger on what it is and in a tangible way for people sometimes. So I feel like um, I'm excited to kind of look at how broad it can be, but also take some kind of practical takeaways for people um, who can, I think, be overwhelmed by uh, how large the scope of it can go. Um, But to begin, give kind of just a sense of maybe for people who aren't familiar with you or this is their first time hearing of you or your work, um, who the work's for, what are some key topics you cover, like kind of an overview for people. Sure. Well, thanks again for having me, Ethan. Yeah. Uh, Well, it is hard to describe because I've had like eight careers. I'm in my eighth (laughs) now. (laughs) So why did it take so long to get where where I am? Well, I had to do all those other things. I had a lot of interests. I was a music major in college and organ, uh, church organist after that. And anyway, Uh, I'm very interdisciplinarily oriented in part because I grew up half of my childhood outside the United States Mm. and realized there were different ways of existing. And, and then the, uh, the uh, mistreatment of children was of concern to me from a young age. And so ethics and morality were just something I always puzzled about and how could the world be so strange (laughs) and so unfair and so cruel and so on. And it just took me a while to get to my PhD, which was in moral development Mm. uh, and, you know, to help me figure things out. Um, And that at first, uh, well, the field tends to focus in on reasoning and that, you know, just make a decision and then, you know, you you have will to carry it out. And that's being a moral person. But I discovered through my wide reading that, no, in my own experience, that doesn't work. You know, if you're all overwhelmed in the moment and feel scared and threatened, you're not going to think very well. You're not going to be very open minded or open hearted. You know, you're all about me for self-protection. And so the book I wrote, Neurobiology and the Development of Human Morality, 
evolution, culture, and wisdom, was trying to figure out and put all the pieces together. And that book led me to, well, uh, the readings of anthropology led me to the evolved nest, which is the early experiences that our species has had around for millions of years that developed, you know, because they work so well to keep people alive and thriving and um, continuing uh, over generations. And then it also led me to indigenous wisdom because the way to get back to being a cooperative creature like our ancestors were, uh, which is again, a myth that, that we were violent, terrible in the past, that's all mythological. Mm. Um, and so the indigenous worldview then is, is how you, uh, uh, well, it supports the evolved nest. And now this new movie I have, Reimagining Humanity, gives us you know, the vision that we need to get, move from where we are in this, uh, we're stuck in the cycle of competitive detachment right now because we forgot how to raise children in the species normal way. And so we create all these people that are uh, have a worldview that's very destructive and um, they don't know there's anything else that could happen. And so trying mm. to build up the imagination, try to give people techniques for reawakening their hearts and making sure they're doing that with children so that the children uh, fulfill their potential, their full spirit. Wow. Absolutely. It's, it's, it's so true. You know, personally, I, um, you know, a huge piece of why I think your work resonates is a lot of things that I have gone through and I'm going through personally and trying to figure out and talking about in therapy and learning about myself connects to a lot of the things you touch on that I think so many people can relate to. Um, and one of the one of the concepts that you just said that I wanted to ask you about was this idea of competitive detachment. And on a societal level, you know, I think, again, I'll, that just like many of your other concepts are things that people aren't necessarily actively thinking about, because it's so much conditioning. But then once you talk about it, it's like, oh, that's me and everybody I know. So when you look at something like competitive detachment, can you just talk about what that is, how that shows up for people, and maybe... Um, you know, an alternative. Well, it's helpful to know uh, Stephen Porges's notion of neuroception. That means that in every situation, immediately, very quickly, without your consciousness, you are gauging whether you feel safe or unsafe. And if you feel safe, you're going to be more open and, and relationally attuned. And if you've got those skills developed from, again, early childhood evolved nestedness, uh, you'll be able to, you know, be fine and flexible. But mm. if you feel unsafe, that triggers then stress response system, uh, different systems in your body that make you brace against the other. You're either going to be, you know, withdrawn and not really be yourself, or you're going to want to dominate because that's that's those are the old parts of the brain that get enhanced when you're not cared for well in, in early childhood. Mm. You're increasing the pre-human capacities just to stay alive. You got to be you know, dominant sometimes and you have to withdraw sometimes and you just have um, enhanced those systems. And so we are doing that now to our kids <laughs> uh, unconsciously, not on purpose, uh, kind of experiments with all the children in the United States uh, because parents are told uh, by the community, by advisors, that they should leave their babies alone and sleep alone, leave them to cry, sleep train them so that they don't need you at night 
which is insane from a social mammal that we are. Uh, but that's what parents are told is right to be a good parent. You have to do these things. And so you're now seeding these uh, neuroception of threat because mm. the child isn't developing that relational attunement, all the skills that have to develop in the early years from face to face, you know, being passed around the family responsively to the child's needs and interests. Um, instead, you're leaving them alone and they're scared to death and they're just trying to stay alive. And then all those systems of staying alive get enhanced. And so in every situation, they're more easily threatened. They see threat because this person's bigger than they are or this person is smarter than they are. And they go into that bracing mode and they don't think very well then because the blood flow shifts when your stress response kicks in. You're not mm -hmm. going to be open-minded or open-hearted or flexible. You're going to be rigid. You have to Then you hang on to a script for a social life because you don't know any better and you want everyone to follow that script that you've identified. Mm. So that's the bottom up neuroception. Yeah. Let's talk about top down neuroception, which is the stories we're told. If, you, if you're told over and over that green people are scary, even though you've never seen one, never talked to one, nothing, but you then see a green person, you're going to go into that stress response, bracing against, don't feel safe. And then again, your neurobiology shifts to make you uh, self-protective. Wow. It's fascinating. And I think, you know, going back to what you just talked about, it, it's the concept of a parent letting their child cry, their newborn or their baby cry and not coming to be with them and all of that is so common, right? That's like everybody I know was told that. And what you're saying is, well, why? Like, that obviously makes no sense. So what, like a newborn parent or a new parent, I should say, what, like, what do they do? They go and be with the child every time they're crying. Like, what is the, um, the response that would be more helpful? Well, the Evolved Nest uh, it tells you all this. It's based on millions of years of experience. It's based on what we share with other animals. The new book is about, you know, other animal nests and how ours is so similar and how it affects biology and brain development. Mm. Uh, so the Evolved Nest is about 24-7 care of babies' presence. You're with them all the time. You don't leave them alone because the baby, until about 18 months of age, is like a fetus of another animal. They have to be born early because otherwise the brain gets too big. So they're at full-term birth, most babies are not allowed to stay in the womb long enough to be really the old-fashioned way of uh, assessing full-term birth, 40 to 42 weeks. Now they're now they talk about it as uh, 37 weeks. Uh, and um, anyway, so the baby is even more immature now at birth than in normal conditions. And so they need an external womb experience, a womb with a view, meaning that you're carrying them around all the time or with them physically because the uh, caregiver is helping them build uh, regulatory systems of all kinds, like the vagus nerve, uh, the oxytocin system, the stress response. And if you leave the baby alone, all sorts of systems get dysregulated and then that becomes their pattern for life, right? Because these are sensitive periods for different systems to establish how they're going to work for the long term so you want to be there with the baby keeping them calm so that they end up with a calm personality and not one that screams every now and then when they don't get their way because you taught them to do that 
because you only came when they screamed and screamed and screamed. Or you never came. You let them scream themselves until they couldn't. They didn't have any enough, en enough energy left to stay alive. They had to shut down. And then you think, oh, see, sleep training works because they got quiet. Well, they've now learned dissociation. They've now learned to distrust you, to distrust their own signals from their own body of needs, right? Distrust the world, relationships generally. You've now seeded pathology. Wow. So intense. And I and I think the other thing is looking ahead and fast forwarding. You know, I find most people, once they're probably in their 30s, begin this like unraveling process of, wait, what? what happened back then? Like what's going on? And, you know, I think what you're talking about is a real challenge for parents who also live in a society that is set up for them to be stressed. You know, I think there's another piece of it is almost the empathy for the parent who's in a really often tight financial situation, economic situation, high stress, you know, desperate for sleep to go work often two to three jobs and that sort of situation, it's, it compounds on itself. Terrible. Right. Yeah. So the Evolved Nest is about what the community provides that child through the parents. So this is not a parent thing, Evolved Nest, which is soothing perinatal experiences, extensive breastfeeding for several years, um, lots of affectionate touch, pretty much 24-7 presence of the parent or the caregiver uh, for the young children. And then free play, self-directed play, and multiple caregivers and responsive caregivers and nature immersion and connection and, and routine healing uh, practices. So all those things are supposed to be provided by the community, <laughs> not by mom alone or mom and dad alone. That's insane. But what, what happens when you, you mistreat parents that way? Well, they can't be responsive and pro provisional to their children. Of course not. And so they're going to develop, they're going to raise people like themselves, no doubt, who are stress reactive. And what's great about having people who are stress reactive, you can make them conform. You can be authoritarian. They, they uh, learn to submit easily. The Nazis knew this in their child raising advice. They knew that if you broke the spirit of a child in those first couple of years, they wouldn't remember why they wouldn't remember. They just automatically conform. Mm. And that that's so interesting. And when you look at, again, like in the societal lens, you know, a big piece of your work is around what we can learn from indigenous cultures and, you know, unlearning the stories we've been told in that department about not just the history of you know, maybe our country, but the history of how humans behave on a day-to-day -day basis and what we need. Um, when you think about it from that communal lens, like what can we take when you look at indigenous wisdom and indigenous cultures on like a communal lens? Um, you know, I remember aloe mothers was a concept. I remember discovering being like, whoa, like, what is that? Like, that should be everywhere. So like, just things like that. Um, what jumps to mind is like a couple key elements we could take from some of those cultures. Yeah, so the, the Evolved Nest is all from those cultures. It's yeah. all from the, from the uh, our ancestors. Who, and we still have groups who are practicing, who are indigenous practicing these things. Uh, routinely. So um, yeah, allo parents, I think is really important. And 
uh, several anthropologists argue that that's actually how we evolved away from being chimpanzee-like. Really? Uh, that, yeah, it was the cooperative child raising is critical to building a, a, an excellent social brain. And an excellent social brain that humans evolved is mind reading, able to share emotions and feelings and thoughts and being able to read the other's minds and, and uh, cooperate that way. Chimpanzees do not do that. They, they don't automatically assume a we. When they when you test a young child uh, and an experimenter versus a, a chimpanzee and an experimenter who where they're in the room and they have a game in front of them or something, and then some other experimenter comes in and moves things around while the first experimenter is gone, the the child knows that that first experimenter doesn't know who moved the stuff or is is able to uh, develop a sense of us together in this but the chimpanzee is kind of no they're they don't have those capacities so what i argue now is that what we're doing with our children by stressing them stressing the parents who can't then provide for their children is we're creating chimpanzees (laughs) we're going back pre-human and then we say oh that's normal this is the way human nature is. We're aggressive and selfish and violent. So just, you know, get your own. It's a dog eat dog world. So we've created this crazy uh, society that's exported all over the world. Uh, and we say it's normal. We forgot what helped our ancestors thrive and survive. Uh, and now we're destroying the planet. So that's the big picture, right? It's these destructive because we're so self-centered and can't, you know, relate very well because we didn't develop all the skills that normally would develop. Uh, and the, the blindness, mindlessness, uh, is carrying us over the cliff. <laughs> you know, when you think about community, right, and the aspect of community, a lot of the time, for me, you know, in our work and my work, um, helping people with their health and wellness and their well-being, you know, a big piece of what I often talk to people about is, you know, let's spend less time, for example, worrying about um, uh, our calories and macros and how intense our workouts were and think about the environment that you're in. And is the environment you're in one that makes it more likely to achieve, you know, wellness or more difficult for you? And is the community around you one that's going to support that or not? I know it's exactly and similar to what you're saying, but in a slightly different way is sort of like achieving health and wellness for yourself personally is almost impossible to do, or it is very hard to do in a really toxic, unhealthy environment all around you. And when you look at community and the power of community, I find the the lens we all kind of live in right now and have been boxed into, which is, yeah, it's really stressful. Life is really busy. Things are kind of shitty and you work as hard as you can to get what you can and just work more and just keep working and just keep working and ignore all of your issues. Um, that's the cycle of competitive detachment right there. Yeah, like that's exactly it, right? It's And that's what I'm getting at is it applies to all of this. And that competitive detachment is basically the thing preventing people from living an actualized life or even reclaiming their authentic selves and knowing anything about themselves. I, I, I wonder, and I guess... 
I know it's not a question, but I wonder when you look at individual health through the lens of communal support, right? Like what, what could that look like for somebody today? So taking some of the things that maybe we can learn from the past, but in modern life, in given that is the society we live in, what are some things people can do to kind of practically implement and, and move in this direction? Well, I think the first thing is to expand your notion of community. Who, what, who or what is a member of the community? The natural world is all around you. That's part of your community, right? So get reconnected, re-immersed in the natural world, connect to whatever animals, plants, trees, uh, the sunshine, the wind, the earth, just go lie on the earth. You know, earthing is lowers your cortisol, probably raises your, I'm sorry, yeah, probably raises your oxytocin. Uh, get connected and feel like you're part of the earth community. I think that's the first thing because that'll make you calmer, right? It's like you start to, you know, a sit spot, John Young talks about finding a sit spot, a place in the natural world where you can go regularly and sit for five, 10 minutes, an hour, whatever works for you and go to the same place and then just let your senses expand. And as you do that, your your heart opens up, your your vision opens up, your, you get more relaxed over time and uh, you become a different person. So that's number one. Mm. Right now, if you're uh, in the city, it's more of a challenge, right? But you can still do it with, you know, plants, trees, the park, the, wherever it is. And just be in your body now. We had we did an experiment a few years ago with college students where we, uh, for the nature connection um, uh, group, we had them, like the other groups, uh, come to the lab, take a pretest, then get kind of motivated about how important their thing was, their particular focus. So reading uh, essay, facts, poem uh, about nature connection, we call it ecological attachment. And then they were given a 40 some possible actions they could do. And they had to pick 21 of them and take them with them. In the next three weeks, they pulled one out of an envelope every day and did that action all day long. So one was uh, pay attention to the clouds today. Uh, acknowledge the trees as you walk by them. And so each nudge was trying to get them back in their body, back in the present moment, in a relational orientation, right? And this is all available in some more activities at ecoattachment.dance. So that experiment was put into something the public can do for wow. free, of course. Yeah. Amazing. I think I think what you said about broadening the lens of community is is something I've personally experienced a lot. I mean, I have found that through my own work, um, unpacking lots of things and kind of removing that need to be so achievement oriented and, and pull away from that. I've found it to be some of the most powerful, you know, experiences I've ever done is like going to a park and walking around. Or like I recently, I'm, I'm two weeks into gardening in my life. I'm two weeks in our backyard. I don't know what I'm doing at all. I'm figuring it out. But going out there every morning and like watering them, even without any knowledge of what I'm doing, is like 
a meditation every day. My day is better from doing that. So I think what I've experienced is the achievement part of my brain that has been programmed so heavily almost wants to go do the most extreme version of nature or the most extreme version of whatever. And it's like, the reality is what doesn't seem like it would do anything like going and watering my plants for five minutes or finding a sit spot you're talking about for five to 10 minutes is actually a lot of times plenty and it makes a huge difference. And I think that that's not a question, but it's just an observation I've had. Um, in my own life. Yeah. Uh, what what I, I always say, what you practice is what you become. This is especially true for babies. What they practice, if you have them practicing screaming, uh, loneliness, despair, they're going to become that kind of person, right? Or you're going to have them practice happiness and joy and playfulness. And we do the same thing for us. What we practice then becomes part of our habit, part of our character. It's harder for an adult to change their character, right? It takes a lot more practice than mm -hmm. for a child, but we can do it. And uh, we start to shift away from that competitive detachment to an orientation of cooperative companionship. And so you're a companion to the natural world. They are companions to you. You know, the earth doesn't need human beings. We're kind of making a mess of it. Everybody else would do pretty well without us. Uh, we're kind of the most expendable animal on the planet. Uh, so uh, stop being so egocentric and think you're so <laughs> cool, you know, <laughs> get right. to earth. <laughs> you are reliant on all the others. <laughs> wow. Yeah. The cooperative companionship is, is fascinating. I think what you're, what you're saying is also true, which is then going back. I know we're moving back in a sense, but looking back at that same child parent example, the other thing that happens through that process is the child is taught that the love for them is conditional on them behaving a certain way or showing up a certain way. And that's where you see it manifest decades later into people pleasers and codependency and a lot of these roles that we jump into where we're just moving around desperate for love and, and attachment. Um, it, and I think one of the big challenges is for people to recognize that part of them getting to know themselves is removing the need to hide who they actually are and remove it like that feeling of being inauthentic or I can't share this with this person, or I can't share this because it's taboo and all of this, like that suppression of self is what I see and in talking to people um, to be maybe the most intense um, things that anybody's experiencing right now. Yeah, the Hawaiians have a, a concept of a child being a bowl of light. And, you know, they're ready to beam out and be themselves. But then when you start to wound them, and when you don't provide the evolved nest, you're wounding the child, right? They they have then the, the Hawaiians talk about it as a rock that comes in this bowl of light, and then there's more rocks and more rocks. It starts to block the light. You can also think about it as Velcro. There's Velcro that gets covering your spirit, and it gets thicker and thicker. And then when you're an adult, it's like, gee, where am I? <laughs> Somewhere <laughs> in there. <laughs> right. 
And you have to pull back the layers to figure out who you actually are. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Um, another question for you, um, which is a little bit of a detour, but is related. Um, I was thinking about this and prepping um, for this episode a little bit, which is there's been so much around infertility and around um, issues in that space for people. Um, a lot of this work being discussed in the Evolved Nest is almost with the implication that this is your own birthed child. So when you look at parents like people who might be fostering or adoption or anything in that department, like let's say you are removing some of the biological pieces of it there, but on a core parenting level for somebody who might adopt a young child, um, does everything apply the same way? Are there any adjustments, anything that should be factored into that sort of equation? No, it's the Evolved Nest applies the same way. And adopting mothers can breastfeed. There are techniques to do that, even though you've never had a child even. <laughs> so mm. that's kind of miraculous, seems to be. Wow. Um, but if you are uh, have a surrogate mother, it would probably be important at the beginning to have um, clothing or something that smells like her so that the baby feels like they're safe because they're used to being in that mother's womb, uh, assuming the womb is a safe one. There wasn't too much stress. Mm. Um, so I would probably do that, recommend that would be different. Well, actually, if you're the whoever the biological mother is, their smell should be around that baby all the time, not the perfumes, but the real smell. Yeah. Uh, wow. Initially, yeah. Interesting. All right. That makes total sense. Um, one other thing, and I heard you talk about this that I wanted to talk to you about, was this idea of play for children and the importance of that um, and how that ultimately maybe gets lost, but but how children are raised now and the relationship with play and what that looks like and how it helps childhood development. Could you just talk ah, about that? Yeah, self-directed play is where the child gets to run around and climb trees and play chase or whatever they're interested in, follow their curiosity, especially good in the natural world, not just a, a lawn, <laughs> but you know, a complex natural world. Uh, and then the parents need to kind of look away and just let the child do risky things. So that's uh, how they develop confidence, self-confidence. Um, but play of self-directed variety should also be with other kids of multiple ages. In our ancestral context, we didn't weren't isolated by age. That's a nutty thing to do. It's, what do you have to learn from the, the person that's your same age? Not much. You learn from the elders, people who are older than you, older kids and so on. Uh, so that's the normal way of learning. It's natural pedagogy, really, to learn from the elders, from the older people. Uh, and so play needs to also then be self-directed. And that means not organized by adults into some rule game sport thing, you know, that the adults are in charge of and blowing whistles and all that. No, that's not the same. Although that's better than staying home in front of a screen. Yeah. <laughs> it's self-directed play. Self-directed yeah we know turns on all sorts of genes it's developing the executive uh, functions of being able to stop and start action to have empathy for your partner because your play partner will stop playing with you if you're too aggressive you know mm -hmm. so you have to pick up on the signals 
You have to learn to react to unexpected things your play partner is going to do. So it's all so good for brain development and social skills and leadership skills. Wow. When you talk about sports, right, you talk about that sort of thing. I think a lot of people and parents associate play with playing a sport specifically. And when you're talking about more kind of self-directed play and it I think for a lot of parents, I'm picturing my mom right now and picturing us as kids, the idea of us running around and self-directed play in nature um, was not a thing because I think she felt, and again, shout out to Marcy, nothing, nothing against her, but I think she would admit the first thing that comes to mind is danger and that could be unsafe or what if they get hurt or what if something happens. Um, but what you're kind of saying is it like remove that and just the only way to work against that is by experiencing it and knowing that it'll be okay. Yeah, the play experiences have really shrunk uh, for children in the last few decades. Uh, when I was a child, they just, our parents told us, just go play. And they didn't want to see you until mealtime when they call you in, right? And they didn't want to know what you're doing. They just, we got to get out of here. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> that's changed. Yeah, true. Yeah, from television. Television has made everybody worried uh, about a mean world out there, dangerous world, and and uh, especially with the alerts about children uh, getting kidnapped or whatever. And so, and having not been nested yourself as a parent, you're going to be more easily tri triggered into fear, right? <clears throat> so we have a lot of parents who want to control pretty much their children's lives and not let them have the freedom they need. Mm. And you could also, even to take it a step further, it sounds like a lot of the parents are living in a society where they don't feel much control and there's a lot of stress and a lot of, you know, um, regulation sort of like forced on them for how they're supposed to structure their life. And I think that might manifest into parenting too, where it's like, well, I can control this person's life and they're going to be great and they're going to be perfect. And even if I'm stressed, like they're going to be great. And manifesting it in that way is actually the opposite of what the kid might need, it sounds like. Yeah, so we're passing on trauma generation after generation, essentially. Wow. Wow. And when you bringing it into on a personal development level, right? So on, on a slightly different lens, if somebody is working on, like I'm thinking about myself, I'm thinking about, a lot of people who are listening to this podcast who are on some sort of journey or working on themselves in some way, whether it's directly in the vein we're talking about or otherwise. A huge piece of, of what transcends this is the ability to step outside of what everybody around you is doing and sort of recognizing what our society does for people and the courage to kind of reject that a little bit. Um, and there's so much, especially around parenting, that can be taboo where people can be judgmental or have opinions or, oh, did you see they're doing this with their kid and this kind of stuff um, is a huge solution to that, to the parent or to the person who wants to change themselves in this toxic society is the best place they can look. Um, finding support and community around them but with other like-minded people working on the same things as them? Like what would be a good first place to look? 
Yeah, I think so. To find your 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 group, your kind of art uh, self-made community, right? So there are groups like that. The Attachment Parenting International has uh, groups of support and, and leaders and such, and La Leche League uh, for breastfeeding and um, other kind of supports. So I think parents have to be deliberate about it now, unless they have really a family, uh, extended family around them that's actually oriented to being compassionate to children. A lot of unfortunate uh, advice comes from family members who tell you parents, oh, you got to sleep train the child. Don't let, don't spoil the baby. You don't pick them up. All this stuff that's all mythological uh, back when, um, you know, it's, it's been around for over 100, 200 years, maybe um, that kind of bad advice, mm. which, is, you know, related to being cruel, really. Uh, so, you know, if you experience cruelty in your early childhood, you're probably going to be cruel yourself because you have that deeply in you that it's okay to to hurt others <clears throat> because you were hurt so badly and you're still resentful about it so you're carrying that grudge with you so it's really important for parents to heal themselves uh and brain-based parenting that book is really a good one because it points out how um you might get triggered by your child and then you need to do something so that you're not passing on your trauma to the child be just because they're upset for the moment you know yeah Okay. So there are things I, uh, when I work with uh, my students, I've always uh, emphasized, and in my neurobiology book, emphasized how if you weren't raised with a nest, well, you got things to do. So you got to <laughs> help yourself calm down, you know, because your stress response, the old parts of the brain get easily triggered. So you got to figure out, you know, when is that happening? Oh, my jaw's tightening, or oh, I'm withdrawing my, you know, I'm getting whatever. Uh, and notice the signals which takes a while to notice and then you got to build some practices that help you calm down when that happens to breathe deeply or you know tapping or you know other kind of vagus nerve stimulations uh and then that's not enough though to be your full human self you've got to also build social joy with others and in my classrooms with students uh under college students um we i would teach them folk song games because i used to be a music teacher and in the folk song game, like a hunting, we will go, a hunting, we will go, we'll catch a little fox and put him in a box and then we'll let him go. Uh, so you have this uh, two people and then you catch somebody, and you make a bigger circle and you keep catching more people as they're coming through. And mm. you have to touch people. You you're looking at them, you're singing together, you're smiling, you're laughing, all vagus nerve development. It's all right brain development, because what happens with unnested care in early life is your right brain gets underdeveloped. And the right brain is the seat of your empathy, your self-control, your higher consciousness, your ability to be in your body now mm. and be okay. So you're learning to do that through fun um, folk song games. But that's not enough yet to be fully human, right? You've got to have your imagination engaged. And so that's what this new movie's about, reimaginginghumanity.org. You can see it. Um, wow. And that's to understand that we don't have to be in this cycle of competitive detachment, that we're not uh, disposed as a species to be so uh, miserable, <laughs> right? Yeah. Supposed to be yeah. happy like all the other creatures who aren't disturbed by humans. <laughs> They're happy and enjoying themselves, right? That's us too. Let's get back to that. I love it. Tell me more about the, the movie. You said it's coming out, um, what day? 
it's being launched on June 20. Okay, perfect. Great. And uh, so tell me, tell me a bit more about it. Yeah. What I know you'd said people can find it online. Is that it? Or yes, humanity, uh, www.reimaginginghumanity.org. Great. Or .com. So yeah. it helps. I mean, it's taking into account a lot of the things we're talking about today, obviously, but, um, it builds on the earlier film breaking the cycle. Did you okay. see that? Breaking yeah. Cycle film.org is a way to get that. That's a six minute movie. Uh, and, you know, it tells you that we get, we're stuck here. How can we get out of this? You know, um, but that's not enough. So, re reimagining humanity is about what can we be? People have forgotten who we can be and how we can be. And we, you know, it's uh, just anyway. Um, so, I think having the multiple pieces are, is really important for people to realize that we don't have to put up with what we're putting up with. That completely lands with me so hard when you say people have forgotten what they can be and that imagination. That, I think, sums up my entire like philosophy on humans is people have forgotten what they can be. And it's for me, it's honestly devastating. Like when I, you know, um, see it in other people in society, it's like our society is set up to sort of like beat the life out of people to like drain the sense of possibility from people and people forget that they can do all these things and they can be whoever they want to be. But they tell themselves they can't. They tell themselves, well, that's nice, but I have to pay rent or I have to do this thing. And you lose that possibility. Like losing that possibility to me is maybe the saddest thing in society. So somebody reimagining that is sort of where you take some of the things we've talked about as far as their own development or developing, you know, another child but looking at themselves in adulthood, maybe, and going, oh, it's not too late for me. I can change this. Like, it, there, it, there doesn't have to be a sense of hopelessness to my work or life or routines. Um, it's just something that resonates a lot with me. And I talk to people about all the time. And I love that you're highlighting that in your work with a science-based background to it, too. It's not woo-woo. Yeah, it's transdisciplinary science across disciplines, right? Yeah. Yeah, so it's really important, I think, that we remember our potential. We also live in a system that is strangling everybody, essentially smothering us. So we have to change the system, too. It's not enough to just change ourselves, which is really important, right? Uh, but we have to get out of this system that indebts everybody, that beats them down, that... Uh, control so much of who we can be uh, and get back to, to ways of, of growing ourselves, growing and supporting ourselves that are more nested, that are not so controlling. Yeah. And with that, almost as a final piece I want to talk about is exactly that, is knowing it's such a systematic thing, you know, one practice people can do is that kind of self-healing and some of the um, mindfulness work and some of the social joy work and some of those pieces to kind of heal themselves. Um, 
Uh, next extension is the community piece you've touched on and the power of that community, expanding what your community looks like, but also finding like-minded people with similar beliefs. The larger tier is that systematic piece, that kind of oppressive nature of our, our world and the workforce that we're in. Um, on that level, like on a system, do you see that change happening? Do you see routes for progress there? Like what, what can people do on that level? Well, I think uh, around the world, there are uh, more hopeful signs than in the States. <laughs> in the States, it's kind of, my goodness, what's happening? <laughs> yeah. Uh, we need to, you know, push for paid parental leave for everybody, at least for a year, if not three years. Um, yeah. We've got billionaires that are having, you know, what, 10 yachts? <laughs> 10 they don't need all that. Come on, tax the rich. We got to do that so that the rest of us can breathe, for heaven's sakes. Yeah. Uh, and so minimum wage needs to be raised, 20 bucks an hour at least. Um, for example, there's all those little things. I think everybody is in a, wherever you are in the world, you can move to try to work at multiple levels, your own personal development, nestedness. Uh, we're going to have uh, soon a, a curriculum on the Evolve Nest, which is for the public to go through to learn more about each component and then uh, assess how nested they are and give them ideas for what to do. Mm. Uh, because most of the components are for everybody. Uh, just the first two aren't, you know, soothing per perinatal experience and breastfeeding. Um, at least as far as we know. <laughs> uh, so uh, we can all work wherever we are to try to shift society towards being uh, a cooperative companionship instead of this competitive attachment. That means we have to let go of some things though, right? We don't have to have the latest whatever gadget. We don't have to have the best. We don't have to be competitive. If we get back down to being an earth member, a community member of the earth, <laughs> we realize it's much more important to maintain the relationships, to maintain the health of everybody and everything around us, rather than try to, you know, have one more, what, uh, gold bar in our bank account, whatever that is. Uh, so the cooperation, we have to also, I think, just shut down the media. The media is, you know, people have warned since the 60s, and that was just television back then, that it makes people think the world is a mean place. And it makes people we know uh, more violent, more aggressive, because they think it's normal to be aggressive, because they see it on TV all the time. Uh, and it makes them less sympathetic uh, or empathetic with victims. So mm -hmm. we have to get away from the media, because it's coloring what we think is normal, and, and immerse ourselves in environments of companionship. And that then will train up our intuitions to assume that's the normal way to be a human being. That's beautiful. And it's so true. I remember, you know, we, my wife and I went to Ecuador recently and I know, you know, we went to Ecuador recently before going on the trip, lots of friends, family, everybody's warning us how dangerous it is. Be careful. There, there's going to be, so, you know, people are going to rob you, like, just be careful, stay by the resorts, do this, you know, whatever. And I remember we went there and the first thing that the person said who was kind of, um, you know, the manager at the the place we were staying. First thing he says, just so you know, everything you've heard or seen on the media or that your parents or friends told you about us is not true. And this is safe. And I promise you're fine. And I just remember being like, 
this is really heavy stuff that like they already know like that, that, that needs to be the first thing said. And it's kind of what you're talking about, right? Which is we see all this horrible stuff on the news. We assume the world is scary. We freak out. We go into this fight or flight protective mode. All of a sudden nature is a dangerous thing because we're going to get, we're going to eat a poisonous blueberry or something. So let's just stay away from that and not go out there and stay inside and stay on our screens and continue watching TV and seeing that same cycle. Yeah, brilliant. Yep, that's it. Yeah, so that's the neuroception from the top. The the myths and stories we're told is like, oh, oh, oh. <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. And then you're constantly forgetting that the piece you're not connecting with through that cycle are the people that live next door to you and that if you just walk outside or walk down the street that's a different world than the world that i just described it's like a completely unrelated universe happening that's reality versus what you're seeing yeah and you're gardening right yeah mm -hmm. absolutely absolutely um final question for you i have loved talking to you. I think you're brilliant. I think everybody needs to check out your work. And I think, um, I think broadening the view of health and well-being and the world is so important. Um, so I'm grateful. But last question, I ask every guest this drum roll. Um, how would you define true health? True health. True health. How would you define true health? Well, I relate it to virtue. My area is moral development and morality. So virtue is having a coordinated response to your head, your heart, your gut, your actions, your action capacities, all are coordinated to enhance life around you. And, and, and that would be, so for true health, it would be also enhancing your own life, your own body's life, your own bio microbiome, <laughs> your, your fullness of you, you're able to enhance because you've got the skills, capacities, and support systems, right, around you to do that. So that means you're eating well, you're drinking water, good water, and all sorts of things, and, and you're getting the tuned up body uh, that works for you, exercise, or whatever it is. So it is a, a coordinated uh, way of being in the world, that enhances all of who you are and all of the uh, the flourishing of all around you. Beautiful. I love it. Like I said, I think you're brilliant. I think your work's amazing. Um, and genuinely, I, I think in talking to you today, it was exactly what I hoped, which was to take something that is such an expansive topic that can cover literally the extent of humans and go through almost um, a straightforward protocol in a sense, in a sense of everything from parenting to community to just small tweaks people can do to improve um, their life. And so I'm super grateful. Um, for anybody listening, we will put many links in the episode notes to all of her work. So check it out. Um, it's all amazing. But Darsha, is there anything specifically you'd love for people to check out or find you online somewhere right now? Well, I think evolvednest.org is the place to go. And then check out the new film, reimaginginghumanity.org. I love it. And I will. Um, thank you so much. 
Thank you. Pleasure to be with you. Thanks.